Hello, this is Pastor Brooks Rice, and after a couple years of study, I decided to do a two-week lecture series on the role of women in church leadership. It's an area of study that's really challenged me to look at my assumptions of what I believe that the Bible teaches and just come to the Bible more as a student and a learner rather than an expert. And it's been really, really good for me. So we did a two-part lecture series. This is week two of that lecture series. I hope that you enjoy and I hope it challenges you to look at your assumptions about what the Bible teaches about this topic and and just come back to the scriptures again and again uh, humbly as a learner. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, hey, just some just some reclarification. We talked about egalitarianism, which is the idea that male and female are are created equal. Yes, but also kind of like a strong form of egalitarianism says. But you know, there there are no differences between men and women. They're just like the, the absolute same. The complementarian view, complementarianism, is on the other side of that. Complementary comes from the name that they're complementary, that male and female are different. But kind of the stronger form of complementarianism is male and female are, are equal but different, but especially one of the main ways that they're different is that men are designed just by, just by the very, their very nature of being male, that they are supposed to be in authority over women as leaders. And women, because they're female, because of creation, because of design, they're supposed to be um, following. Um, and so I was just saying that I'm, I'm arguing for what's what we're calling mutualism. It's complementarity without hierarchy. Complementarianism has this idea of hierarchy in it, that there's like the man is up here and the woman is down here. Mutualism, and you know, we could look at these things and we could say, isn't it all semantics? Like it's kind of, mutualism is in a, in a way like borrowing a little bit from each, kind of putting it together, saying, no, male and God did create male and female. There's a difference, and those differences are beautiful and wonderful, and we're never really going to get to the bottom of, of really what all that means, but they are different. Um, and are there, like, different functions and roles? P- perhaps. Um, you know, we're not even we're not going to get into that tonight, but, um, but are they different in a way that makes male be in a hierarchical hierarchical relationship with females where they're above and women are underneath. The mutualist says says no. There's complementarity without hierarchy. That's kind of what where I've landed. But you know, obviously, um, my, I'm just going to remind you of some of my goals. Um, my goal is just for us t- is to open us up and approach the Bible humbly as students and learners. Some of the passages passages that we're going to look at tonight are so tough. I mean, everybody pretty much agrees that some of these passages that we're going to read are some of the toughest in the, in the Bible because they're so confusing and it's so hard to know what the context is. Um, so, so we just want to be learners and want to have an open hand. Um, I also want to clarify, I'm focusing in on women in leadership roles in the church um, primarily, okay? Um, husbands and wives, the relationship between men and women, and we talked about this last week, sometimes the Bible uses those terms interchangeably, husband, wife, male, female. So sometimes when you come to some texts, it's hard to know, is this talking about like all males and all females, or is this talking about a husband and a wife? Sometimes it's unclear. So um, what I want to primarily focus on is, is a woman and her, is she able to have authority over over anyone, male and female, in like a church leadership setting, I'm not so much wanting to get into the relationship between husband and a wife, 
um, while there's going to be obvious overlap there. And we are going to look a little bit, we're going to dip our toes into Ephesians chapter 5 a little bit tonight. But um, my primary focus isn't to, um, you know, the scope is I want to talk about some of the tricky passages as it relates to women in leadership roles in the church. And then also, um, we have to remember Bible translation is beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's, it's, it's deeper than any of us ever expected to be. Translating some of those, some of those uh, ancient texts and figuring out what they might have meant by something, man, it is so challenging. Uh, I used this example a couple weeks ago in a sermon, but it's like, if, but if I wrote a friend who was going to do a play, if I wrote, hey, break a leg, and if somebody found that 2,000 years later, they'd be so confused. They're like, wait, I thought they were friends. Like, are they enemies? What does this mean? You know, I mean, they would have this text that says, hey, break a leg, and they would have to try to do some digging to understand really what all that meant. And so we have to do the same. Um, and, um, you know, and, and Bible translations are made by humans. And sometimes those humans have some, they come to the scriptures with some biases, with some assumptions. And so therefore, and we'll, we're going to see some of that tonight. Um, okay, so let's see, just quick recap. We had to start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because the scriptures that we're going to look at tonight, Paul several times points back to creation. So there's some context there. But just real quick, we said, hey, what we have to do is we have to say, hey, is do we see hierarchy between the male and female relationship in Genesis 1 and 2, like in, in God's ideal creation? And then if, if we do or don't, what does like the fall of humanity, what are the consequences of sin entering in? Um, and then we have to ask ourselves, hey, but because of the cross, because we're new creations in Christ, and because we're in this, this period of time where it's the Theologians call it the already but not yet kingdom, that the kingdom has come because Jesus has died and rose again, but yet at the same time, it's not here yet. It's still on its way. And so we're in this overlap of the ages. And so the church of Jesus gets to be this beautiful place where hopefully it's a foretaste, where it's a it's a mile, it's a it's a signpost of what this what it, what it means to be the new humanity, even though we're going to get it wrong, we're going to fail, but yeah, we have the Holy Spirit in us to really do be transformed so that Christ is formed in us, that we really can be this, this, this foretaste of the new creation. And then where is all that heading? Is that heading towards like an ultimate reality of hierarchy or not? So we, we kind of just said, and those, those questions really hinge on a few things like how you translate Ezer Konegdo. And what does it mean where it says her desire will be for her husband, but he will rule over her? You know, just such interesting uh, topics. And then, you know, we, and then we're trying to build a case of like, okay, but what else do we see in scripture? And so, you know, we briefly, we was just right at the end of our time last week. We talked about there's all the female leaders that we see in the Old Testament, even the protection for women in the Old Testament law, which when you read the Old Testament law, sometimes it seems like it's anti-woman. But if you try to look at it in the context of what the what was happening around the Israelites, that probably that being an Israelite woman was was the one of the best places that you could be because of how everything else was and how God was creating provisions in the law to protect women. And then we talked about that, um, the, the prophecy from Joel pointing towards men and women as partners in ministry that, you know, that I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, men and women. That's from the prophet Joel. And then we just, then we get into the life of Jesus and we just see that Jesus, um, that, that his ministry was just full of, of, of lifting up women, including women, um, we talked about, you know, just briefly about Jesus' mother, Mary, how beautiful it is that God decided to come into the world, not just through a woman, but made of a woman. Um, 
as, that's interesting to me. It's fascinating. And then we just see Jesus' treatment and inclusion of women all over the place. Jesus teaches and demonstrates what, and then we, Jesus is teaching about authority, about what it, what, what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus, that it's not about power. Remember, he's talking to his disciples and they're like, who's gets to be in charge? And he's like, no, 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 not so with you. We're going we're gonna to do this differently than the rest of the world does. Um, and then, um, and then a huge one is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two. And it's that fulfillment of the prophet Joel where the spirit comes and what does it land on just the apostles? No, it lands on everyone there. And what a beautiful picture of, of like this vision of male and female, um, being, you know, like the kind of like getting back to the garden where they were co-rulers, co-heirs together. Um, and then we briefly, we talked about some female leaders in the church, which we'll get into a bunch more. But we got to get to this guy, Paul, the Apostle Paul, because there's a lot of opinions about the Apostle Paul. I was meeting with somebody um, from our church. It was about a year ago. We were just meeting and I was talking about like, some of the stuff I've been reading and just, man. And they're like, and they said, oh, Paul. I hate Paul. <laughs> and I was like, really? And they're like, yes, I hate Paul. Like just all this stuff that he said is just, <laughs> and you know, like, uh, just a lot of people feel that way because of some of the things that Paul, uh, when we're, that we're going to read, it just, it does. If on first reading, it seems like Paul is definitely want men to be in authority over women. And in some ways, perhaps even like a misogynist, like just somebody who just, like it has this view of men that are that are um, subjugating women because of some of the uh, some of the things that he writes to some of the churches in the New Testament. So I mean, we have to uh, we have to look at two things. We're going to look at two things of Paul. First, there's Paul's theology, and then there's Paul's practical ministry. Okay, so uh, and I'm I'm blazing, guys, because I just there's so much to get to. So we're just going to blaze through. Um, part of Paul's theology, a huge part of Paul's theology is, is you'll see all over in Paul's letters, this phrase in Christ. He really believes that because of the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, and because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that we get to be that, that, that the, the old, old creation is gone and the new creation has come, that we are in Christ and in Christ, we get to be, get to be different. One of the best places to see this is Galatians. So, and so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, or for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. He's not saying that there's like no such thing as male and female anymore. He, d- he doesn't believe that. But he's saying something profound that like the, the power differentials between these things in, in, in the outside world, he says, when you're in Christ, those things, those things have a different lens. So he's got a really, really strong theology. And then we're going to spend some t- a bunch of time in 1 Corinthians, um, in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. But notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's really interesting. He says, for now, the matters you wrote about, and then he quotes, is it good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. By the way, just pause, because I just, I got to show you this, because this is going to be pertinent a little bit later. Notice where the quotations are. He's um, Paul is writing them a letter because he received a letter from them. So he's been in conversation with them. These are letters that we don't have, but um, Paul's writing them and he says, hey, you wrote to me this. Here's what I say. So he's quoting them and it's obvious that he's quoting them. What's interesting is different translations are very unsure about where to put these quotation marks because in the Greek, 
in the Greek, there's no such thing as quotation marks. So it's all just strung together. And so sometimes it's hard to know what, what's a quote. Is Paul quoting someone or is this Paul's voice? This becomes pertinent as a possible way to understand some of these really difficult passages. Um, but notice, I just I, I put a few here for you. Watch. The NIV says that this is not Paul's voice, but this is what they wrote him. Um, but then... The New Revised um, Standard Version says the same thing. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a woman or for a man not to touch a woman. But the New Living, uh, the, the, I think it's the New Living Version says, you asked me some questions in your letter. This is my answer. It is good if a man does not get married. And the New King James Version says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In these two versions, they think that this is, this is Paul's voice, not a quote. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, it's confusing. Um, so different translations put those quotation marks in different places, but we'll get back to that. Uh, so we'll go on. He says, uh, but since sexual immorality is, is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. And then he says something like nobody else would, would say in that culture. Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Like, whoa, like Paul's like, those, that would have been like really maybe even controversial. Like what? Like the woman? Oh, interesting. So Paul, in his theology, he really believes that in Christ, there's this, there's this reordering of power and submission and headship. And we'll talk about all that. Um, and then there's Paul's practical ministry. Okay, does Paul really have a problem with women in ministry, in, in ministry leadership roles? Does he really? Let's look at his practical ministry. And the best place to look, sorry, this next slide has lots of words on it. All right, <laughs> I, I understand. I just tried to put it all in one slide because this is Romans 16. And Romans 16 is so fascinating. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but Paul, uh, at the end of his letter to the Romans, he's, he's thanking all these people and listing a bunch of people's names. And he lists a bunch of women in this passage. And it's really, really interesting. Um, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in, I don't know how to say that, that word. Um, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. Uh, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. And then he says, Pris greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. And then a couple of verses later, he says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. He lists a bunch of other people, Okay. Um, but we're going to, um, but here's a quote from Scott McKnight, who I really, um, appreciate his scholarship. He says of the 29 people that he lists in Romans 16, 10 are women, which is especially interesting, however, or what is especially interesting, however, is that seven of the 10 women are described in terms of their ministry. By comparison, only three men are described in terms of their ministry. And two of these men are ministering alongside a female partner. These are numbers worth remembering. It is apparent that women were active in significant ministries in the church in Rome. It is also apparent that Paul has no problem with it. Interesting. Uh, but let's talk about just those three people that I underlined. First, Phoebe says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon. That word is deacon. Now, uh, some translations translate it differently. Um, some translate, whenever, whenever this, that word is paired up with a man, they call it a deacon. But a lot of translations, when it's paired up with a woman, it, they translate it as servant. 
or helper, which is a little weird to me because the word is deacon. Apparently, Phoebe's a deacon in this church. Um, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor. This word benefactor, prostatus, I think is how you say it. This is one of those words that only shows up one time in the New Testament or at one time in the Bible. So it's one of those words where it's like, what does it mean? What does that word mean? Um, you know, the best idea, deacon, it's uh, the, that word for deacon, it's tr- it's uh, translated deacon, minister, servant. And then that prostatus, it's sponsor, benefactor, patron. A lot of our different, the different uh, translations insert some of those different words. Phoebe is, apparently she's a, an important leader in the church. That's what we can pick up. Now, the next part is fascinating. Phoebe carried, we, this is what we know. Phoebe carried the letter of, uh, of Romans to the church in Rome. And what we know about that role is that the task of carrying a letter to a church would have entailed not simply delivering the letter, <laughs> but reading slash performing the letter for the hearers with the correct tone and emphasis as if from Paul himself. The deliverer of the letter would have then stood up in the assembly, the group, and would have read it and would have not just read it like kind of wooden style, but, you know, with with some gusto, you know, like when Paul's excited, then they're going to read it excited. And then in a lot of cases, they would answer questions about the letter and talk about a book that you need to ask questions about. You know, Romans is a tough book. And Phoebe is the one that carried it. I love this quote from N.T. Wright, who, by all accounts, is probably the, mo- the f- most foremost New Testament scholar alive today. N.T. Wright says this, Paul entrusted the letter to a deacon called Phoebe, whose work was taking her to Rome. The letter bearer would normally be the one to read it out to the recipients and explain its contents. The first expositor of Paul's greatest letter was an ordained traveling businesswoman. That's cool. That's interesting. Uh, next, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, they're a married couple, friends of Paul. They lived and worked, traveled, ministered together. Um, they, uh, there's this, uh, they equipped Apollos for ministry. Apollos like, needed some training, and so Priscilla and Aquila helped. And then what's interesting is that Priscilla's name is listed before her husband's in four of the six times their names are mentioned in the New Testament, which, which would have been unique. Usually the male's name is listed first, but Priscilla's name is listed four out of the six times her name is listed first, which... A lot of scholars think that that means something, that that means that she's like, not like hierarchy, like better, but she's like, like in this sort of prominent, like leadership ministry type of a role. It's interesting. And then we get to Junia. Ah, Junia. The history of mistranslation for Junia is honestly, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Um, Bible translators in the past, they, they, well, first, the, in all the earliest documents and all the early church follower, fathers, in the first thousand years of Bible reading and translation, everyone knew that Junia was a woman. It's a woman's name. And then right, right around, like, you know, uh, it, especially, well, before the Reformation, but especially in the Reformation, Martin Luther being one of them, they read, they read Andronicus and Junia, outstanding among the apostles, Oh, well, that can't, she can't be a woman because a woman wouldn't be outstanding among the apostles because a woman can't be among the apostles. So this must be a man. So they change his name. They change her name to Junius, or sorry, to, uh, sorry, yeah, to Junius um, on the grounds that a woman would not have had such a status. So for a long time in Bible translation, 
Junia was Junius for a long time. Until after the Reformation, people are like, wait a minute, no, that's a woman's name. And so, so her name got restored, um, but here's what happened, is her name gets restored, but now then that part that says outstanding among the apostles, then Bible translators are like, wait a minute, so if it is a woman, then she can't be outstanding among the apostles. So I put some, I put some different translations. The New King James says that Andronicus and Junia, who were of note among the apostles, uh, the New Century Version says that they were, Andronicus and Junia, they were very important apostles. The NIV says they are outstanding among the apostles. The New Revised Standard Version says they are prominent among the apostles. But a couple translations say they are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. That's different, isn't it? Um, the ESV says that they are well known to the apostles. So they're not, they're not outstanding among the apostles, but no, they're, the apostles know about them. So different, right? And then the RSV says they are men of note among the apostles. <sighs> Bad. <laughs> Embarrassing. No. So I just pull that out to say just the, the story of whole books have been written on Junia, by the way, which are, are worth the read. Um, and then what we know, too, is that there, the, how, there were house churches that met in a lot of these women's homes. Now, what we're not supposed to pick up from that is like, oh, they met in their homes. So these women were like fluffing pillows before people came <laughs> and getting a snack ready and baking, you know, coffee cake. And no, like to have a, a house church meet in your home that, that you you weren't just like fluffing pillows like you're you're one of the you led like you were. That was that was what happened if the church met in your home. Um, so the takeaway here's here's my takeaway. It just doesn't seem that Paul, it doesn't seem that he has a problem with with women in leadership roles. Uh, Neither is there any indication that these women had leadership roles only over other women and children. Rather, these women had authority and influence over men who they ministered to. It just seems like when you just look at the trajectory of the scriptures, and then when you just look at Paul's theology and his practical ministry, it just really seems like Paul has, uh, that women were leading all over the place. We don't just even know this from Paul. We know this from church history. Rodney Stark wrote a a fantastic book called The Rise of Christianity, where he says that one of the main reasons why the early church grew in those early centuries were because of the female leadership that was a part of the church during those those centuries. Um, But then we get to these really difficult passages, all right? So we have some interpretive... Some options for interpretation, okay? So I'm just gonna, these, this probably isn't exhaustive. There's probably more options, okay? But here's some options. When we get to some of these tough passages where it says women be silent in church and a man is supposed to have authority over a woman. So first option is Paul believes that men are designed to lead and women to follow and women cannot have authority over men. Maybe that's, maybe that's an appropriate um, interpretation for some of these verses. I just find that interpretation unlikely based off of what we know about Paul's leadership and Paul's inclusion of women in lots of ministry. But that's an option. Number two is maybe, uh, and, and all sorts of theologians have, have put forward these views in whole books and whole treatises and, you know, like, the, there's, these are all perhaps viable options. And a whole lot of Christians believe that, yep, Paul really does believe that a woman can't have any authority over a man, can't teach a man, can't speak in church. Um, Number two is Paul holds different views and tension. Maybe that's the answer, is he's got 
different, maybe he just has like different, yeah, there's like, he's got two different ideas about men and women and their role in church operating at the same time. Um, or Paul is confused and he oscillates in his thinking. He's a, he's a, he's a fallen human. He's a sinner too. So maybe just like he's, he's oscillating back and forth and he's just a little bit confused. Or Paul ruled on certain practices regarding women that were appropriate to that day and situation, and therefore they're not binding upon us today. Or if, if not, they're not binding upon us today is that if he's, if he's addressing certain situations that were happening in those churches, then it's our job to try to understand what those are. And then from that extrapolate some sort of a principle, some sort of a, some sort of takeaway from, from what we're supposed to do with that. But, um, there, you know, it might mean that that's not necessarily binding on us today because it was situational. Um, another, uh, another perhaps interpretation uh, option is that Paul's actually not saying at all what we've often interpreted him to mean. He's saying something completely different than what we think that he means. Or another one, maybe Paul is either quoting his opponents or some of the text was added later by other translators later. We'll get to that in a second. Um, some, some possible... Um, interpretive options for some of these passages of scripture. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 11. This is regarded by many to be one of the most difficult passages to understand in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14, also, we're also going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. (laughs) And hopefully we can get to all of them. All right, Uh, I'll read it to you. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I handed them down to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for it is one and the same as the, as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, have her also cut her hair off. However, it, it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Wait, for if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or, for, or to have her head shaved, have her cover her head. For a man should not have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman should have authority on her head because of the angels. (laughs) Because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originated from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. What's, What's really interesting to me, too, is... The part about a man having long hair, you know what's interesting? I didn't, I didn't realize this until I was studying, is that we think what we know, when Paul left Corinth, he had taken a vow, 
And when he in the book of Acts, I think it's in Acts 18, it says that he had to he got his hair cut after he left Corinth, left Corinth because he probably had taken a, a Nazarite vow, which would have meant that a lot of the time that he was in Corinth, guess what he probably had? Long really long hair. <laughs> So it's like, wait, what are you, what are you saying, Paul? Like, Paul? like Paul maybe writing this has got a big head of hair, you know? So it's just this like, man, what is he saying? And it, guys, and obviously it should elicit tons of questions, maybe more than these, you know? First, like, what's going on here? Is this about head coverings or hairstyles? Some translations, instead of saying, saying hair covering, it says hair, like a certain hairstyle. So theologians are like, is it a hair... Is it a covering over your head or is it a hairstyle that we're talking about? Why does Paul want men to pray and prophesy with their heads uncovered? What, why does Paul want women to pray and prophesy with their heads covered? Is he referring to all men and all women or just husbands and wives? What is the relationship of cultural practice to theological principle? What does he see as the relationship of man to woman, woman to Christ, Christ to God, etc.? What is this theology of glory he's expressing? Does Paul really believe that attire carries theological significance in relation to gender and also to God? Who are these angels and why do they matter or care? Why does Paul seem to change his view, tone, and argument halfway through? Why does Paul seem to think that this matters so much and uh, matters so much that he has to address it? Just tons of questions. So I hope just as we look at it, like I don't even know if I have great answers. What I just want to present is just maybe some possible different ways to read the text than maybe what we're used to reading the text. Um, and hopefully it just opens up our eyes to like some, some different perspectives. But unfortunately, whole churches have glob- globbed on to a couple of these verses and created like whole theologies around it. And I just don't know if that's a smart thing to do with a passage of scripture that's so confusing. Yeah. It's really confusing. And most everybody agrees that this is one of the most confusing places to look in the New Testament. And so, you know, we should should approach it lightly. First, he says this. uh, He says, be imitators of me, just I also am of Christ. Now, I, I praise you. Okay, so he says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So begs the question, are we talking about all men and women, or is it a husband and wife? It's interesting that it says... Christ is the head of every man, and that's in the Greek. Um, and the man is the head of a woman. It doesn't say every woman. It says a woman. So it's like, okay, maybe Paul's talking about Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman. By the way, this word man, too, might not necessarily mean, like, male man, because, not male man, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, dude, man. Um because there's, there's, there's words that are often get translated as man that is more like a word for, like, everyone. You know, like, if I were to say, hey, guys, we're going to start class, you know I'm not talking to a bunch of guys. I'm talking to everybody here. Right. So it is, it is confusing. Um, but our understanding of these relationships really hinges on that last one. And so most everybody believes, like, okay, if we can understand what he means by, and God is the head of Christ, then that works backwards and helps us understand what these other relationships are all about. So it should then, you know, it should, it, it begs the question, what does it mean by God is the head of Christ? And, and, you know, if somebody's the head, then that leads us to those passages about submitting to a head. Okay, so um, we're going to dive just a little bit into that. Again, it's just like, oh, it makes my head spin. Um, so I hope I can be as clear as I can. But 
Um, first, God is the head of Christ. What does that mean? Does it mean that there's a hierarchy in the Trinity? We talked a little bit about this last week, but is there a hierarchy in the Trinity? Whole church councils have been like battled over on this question. Is the Son subservient to the Father? We know that when Christ was on earth, he was submitted to the Father, for sure. He wanted to do the Father's will. But like, but it's supposed to, it's like the, the picture that we're supposed to get of like Christian orthodoxy through the centuries is that there's not like one in charge, but that they're, they're, they submit to one another, that there are three, but they're, they're so, they're so one that they're three and they're so three that they're one. It's just so mind boggling, but that is this idea of like mutual submission. So there's, is there hierarchy in the Trinity? That should help us understand what it means by head, because if head means hierarchy, then that means that there's hierarchy, you know, God is the head of Christ. Is that really true? Maybe head doesn't necessarily mean hierarchy. Um, So it takes us to Ephesians 5, because this is the part where it says, remember, um, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it goes into wives, submit to your husbands. And so we'll read that. But I wanted to show you something interesting, because when you look at your Bibles, you'll notice that these like there's some sub there's some headings, you know, in your Bible. And those aren't in the original language. Those got added, you know, like those different translations add like little headings. It's supposed to just help us understand when. We're moving to a new topic. Um, what's interesting is that different translations put these headings in different places. And notice where the ESV puts this heading. Submit, su- uh, puts the submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ because it's saying that that is pointing to the stuff that Paul just said, but not to the stuff he's going to say. Isn't that interesting? Um, and, uh, but the, ES, the, the New Revised Standard Version has it this way. So it says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, meaning that this verse is talking about what he's about to say. It's interesting, right? Um, where you even put some subheadings in the scripture can kind of yeah. color our view of like what things are connected to other things. Um, the NIV has that in the same place. But uh, just real quick, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing. I... I would love to, I mean, read the whole thing because it's beautiful. Like, you know, just how, like what, what, uh, how Christ leads the church and how that's supposed to be a model for how, um, how a husband gets to love his wife. But I just want to focus in on that word submit because it's when, when we read the word submit, what do we think? We automatically just think of hierarchy. You know, we think of like somebody's got to submit to somebody else. It, it doesn't sound very, it doesn't sound like a positive thing usually in our culture. Um, but that word submit, um, hupotasso, it could be translated obey or range in an orderly manner beneath, among. So there is like, um, you know, there's like this order thing that's attached to the word submit. And unfortunately, we instantly think of hierarchy and over and under relationship. Uh, between, you know, a superior and inferior sort of person. The submitted one is often presumed to be less valuable, less qualified, etc. So sometimes that that happens when we think of the word submit. But, um, but let's just think about the word submit a little bit more. What's the purpose of submission in God's kingdom? In God's kingdom, in the new humanity, what is the purpose of submission? Is it is it about power and authority? Like, is that what it is? It, I mean, is, is Paul like super interested in like making sure, you know, like, uh, you know, like the, the church has all these like power structures like involved in it? Like, no, not necessarily. Like the, 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 
the trajectory of what submission is supposed to mean in God's kingdom has less to do with power and authority and it has more to do, I think, about relationship and connection and partnership. And there's certainly an order there, but I just wonder if sometimes we kind of insert our own ideas of like inferiority and weakness and put those into this idea of headship and submit because there's different ways of looking at it. One way of looking at it is perhaps something like this. I think this is maybe a helpful illustration for what um, submit might mean. Um, with a nut and a bolt, which one is most important? I don't know, right? Like which one's in charge? Like, those are silly questions to ask of a nut and a bolt um, because those are just the wrong questions, you know? Like, there, and it, to me, it makes me think of, like, um, the, what we talked about last week, which, which is Ezer Konegdo, which is, like, a helper suitable or, like, fit for, you know? Um, and so, like, in this picture, like, the, there is a submission that takes place because these two things work together. Um, another way to think about it is submission doesn't necessarily have to be hierarchical or above and below, but it also can be sequential. So, um, and we'll see this in a second when we look at the word uh, kefale, which is the word for head. But um, think of the alphabet. This is one thing I read in one of the books I was reading. I thought that's actually really helpful in understanding like, perhaps what submit headship might be pointing us towards. Because when you think, think about the alphabet, all right? There is an order, okay? Order's good. Um, you could even call this a hierarchy if you wanted to. Um, you know, there's one comes before the next and comes before the next. But when you look at this order, what's the point of this order? Is the point of the order to decide, like, who's in authority? Is the, is the A in authority because it's first? Or is, like, the R in authority over the T because, you know, because the T comes after it? No? Like, those, those aren't really the questions that we're asking when we're looking at the alphabet. There is an order, but what's the purpose of the order? The purpose of the order is that they would work together to create phrases and words. Like, you know, the order is there so that we can, not because they're always supposed to like stay in that order, like always and forever, but so they can work together. Do you, like, do you see that idea? I just, I find that really helpful and interesting. The order is important, but not for the purpose of authority, but for the purpose of relationship, connection, partnership. Um, and so then we get to the word head, which is we often use head synonymously with a ruler over or authority. We have heads of state. We have the head honcho, you know? Um, a lot of times we think of head and it's like a hierarchy sort of a, sort of a thing, which that is one way that the word head is used in, in the New Testament. The word head is used a lot in the New Testament. It's the word kefale. It means pro one way, one translation is prominence, to be preeminent, to stand out, to be first. So we see it in Colossians 1.18. He is also the head, the kephale, of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place or preeminence in everything. Um, that is one way to, that the word head is translated. But the word head is also translated in another way, which it's just an, uh, we, should, we should consider when we think about what headship submission might mean. Another word, way that the word head is translated is the idea of source or origin, like the headwaters of a river. The headwater of a which what part of the river is more important? You know, like which, which part of the, which water is in charge? That's not, that's not the question you ask when, you, when you're thinking about the headwaters of a river, but there is a a beginning of the river and that flows down to the rest of the river but it's not about authority or hierarchy necessarily it's a different idea and we see this in Colossians chapter 2 just right after the one I just read do you not uh, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you such a person 
also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. It's like a source, you know? Um, so this understanding of head and submit fits, I think, much better in understanding what Paul could have meant when he says Christ is the head of every man and the head of, uh, and, and the, sorry, did I put that in wrong? Christ is the head of every man and the head. And the man. And the man is okay. And the man, sorry. Thank you. I, I wrote that right. I was confused. And the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Um, Perhaps like that idea of like origin, like source, you know, is a better way to understand what Paul means when he says that that God is the head of Christ. Maybe not hierarchical, but like like a place to look at that would be John chapter five. And Jesus is talking about his relationship with the father. And he says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Um, the Son wants to do what the Father is doing. And the Father, if the Father is the head of the Son, then the Father doesn't like, doesn't like um, make Jesus like subservient to him and like pushes him down out of ministry. No, what does the Father do? If the Father is the head, the Father is like, like pushing Jesus to do the things that he does. Um, the father is pushing Jesus to like participate in the kingdom as, uh, the, uh, as, as God in the kingdom. Does that make sense? So if you really do, you know, if, if we really are going to hold on to this idea of like the, well, Paul says that the man is the husband is the head of the wife, but is this supposed to be hierarchical or is this supposed to be like, like, there's this source, there's this life that flows. And is the point to like always be in authority or is the point to say, no, we get to do this. Like we get to do this together. You see? Um, I don't know. I've got lots of thoughts and I don't know if that came out right, but, um, I got to move on because we have so much to get to. Uh, okay. So he says that, that interesting phrase, it says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And then he gets into some really wacky stuff <laughs> about head coverings and about, about prophesying with your head covered and like uh, sh- being shaved. And we're just looking at that. And most everybody agrees that we're not quite sure what Paul's talking about. Um, there's some, there's some, Possibilities. So therefore, a woman should have authority on her head because of the angels. Some see this as she needs proof of a man's authority over her, that that's what this, this authority, or some translations will say that she needs a symbol of authority over her head. But other people see this as it's saying that like, no, she has authority over her own dang head. Like, that's what this authority is. And then it's like, because of the angels. I love that Paul just writes, because of the angels in there. I feel like, I feel like if you want to win an argument, just add because of the angels at the end and just leave it there, you know, <laughs> and see what happens. Because it's like, he just like leaves it hanging. Um, a woman should have authority on her, on her head because of the angels. Who are these angels? Why do they care? Um, and then l- listen to what happens. Cause he like, he's like, he changes his 
tone. Like he changes his whole strategy right here. And then he says, however, in the Lord, neither is man independent of, uh, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originated from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman and all things originate from God. So up here, he, remember, he was talking about like women came from man and there's like the glory of man. But then right here, it's like he's saying, he's like saying, it's like, I don't know. A lot of us are like, oh, okay. Like, so what's going on here? I mean, gosh, a couple possible, uh, possible interpretive possibilities. Okay. So number one is something is going on in Corinth having to do with their newfound freedom in Christ and the temple of Aphrodite. So we know that what Paul has to write to the Corinthians a lot about is they're in Corinth. Corinth is a wacky place. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, like it was that sort of place. Like they, we even know from like ancient writings that if you were called a Corinthian girl, you were, you were a prostitute. That it was like there was this thing happening because of the temple of Aphrodite, because of like temple worship and, you know, the way that they worshiped. It was a fertility goddess sort of thing. You went up to the temple to worship. And there's all sorts of crazy sexual practices and all sorts of other just crazy practices that are happening in this Corinthian church because things from the culture are working its way into the church. And what wasn't helping it was that one of Paul's messages to them is that you are free in Christ. You are free in Christ. And so people were taking that freedom and just being like, wait, we're free in Christ. So I can do whatever I want with my body. You know, I can do whatever I want with my money. Like, you know, there's just this sort of this freedom. And Paul had to like write them again and be like, hey, back the truck up. You know, like, hey, bring it on back. Like, yes, there's freedom in Christ. But, but, so maybe there's something going on with like hairstyles and head coverings. And maybe that has to do with like in that culture, um, you know, uh, if a, a woman who was unavailable sexually, whether because she was married or, you know, betrothed or something, that she would wear a head covering. But, but if you didn't have a head covering, that that meant that you were, you were available sexually, which would have maybe meant that you were a, a, a prostitute or a temple prostitute. And so maybe because of the newfound freedom in Christ, the women in the church are like, we don't need head. Who cares about the head covering stuff? And Paul is just trying to write to this church. He's trying to make them a counterculture to the culture that they're in. And so he's like, hey, you are free in Christ. But it's like, but at the same time, when we're the gathered church, like we, we want to be wise about how we're presenting ourselves like to the outside culture. And if we have like a church full of women, it'd be like, you know, I don't know. It'd be like me, maybe perhaps like maybe every time I preach on Sunday, like I just put my wedding ring away, you know, like. That would be weird, right? Um, I mean, like, I'm, I'm signaling to everyone that I'm taken, you know? Um, maybe that's a bad example. Maybe it's like, maybe it's like, hey, I'm free in Christ to wear, you know, when I go cycling, I wear my, my really tight spandex. And I'm free in Christ to preach with my spandex on. I just want you guys to know that. Like, I could totally do it. I am free in Christ. But, like, should I... That's a different, you know, it's like, would that be weird? Yeah, that'd be weird. Maybe this is what, maybe perhaps this is some of the stuff that's going on. It's really hard for us to understand. Here's another suggestion. Another suggestion is perhaps Paul is quoting the Corinthians' incorrect beliefs back to them and then correcting them with his own thoughts. This is called the rhetorical argument. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's just interesting, okay? I'm not, I don't even know if it's right. I don't, I don't even know, like, there's some problems with, having a rhetorical reading of some of what Paul says, but I at least want to present it to you because, man, it's, it's, it's interesting. So uh, Paul quotes, his, quotes people all the time. And in your, in your Bibles, 
sometimes is very obvious when he's quoting someone. So an obvious place is from Acts chapter 17. So he's talking to, uh, he's talking to all these smart people. And he says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul is you know, telling them, hey, some of your own poets have said this. He's trying to wrap his argument into like what their poets have said. Another place that would be familiar to us perhaps is earlier in the letter to the Corinthians. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is the part where he says, this is the NIV, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, it's the NIV. That's where the NIV puts those quotations. But as we're going to see in the next three quotations, they put those quotations in completely different places. There's not agreement as to where Paul, what, what actually they wrote in their letter and what Paul, what's Paul's voice, what's their voice. This one says everything's permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Um, food for the stomach. Did I put this right? Yeah. Actually, this one's, these ones are the same. I think those are the same. Let's go to the next one because these ones are different. Someone may say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is helpful. I'm allowed to do anything, but I won't allow anything to gain control over my life. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food, but God will put an end to both of them. So in those other translations, they said that food for the stomach and stomach for the food was what they had said. But in this version, they're saying that that's Paul's voice. This version puts the quotation marks somewhere else. I can't remember where, but I'm just, we're blazing through. But the point is, is that Paul quotes, even earlier in the Corinthian letter, he's quoting them, either quoting a letter that they had um, sent him previously that we don't have, or, um, or a, a famous slogan that everybody would have known that he's quoting to them. So the rhetorical argument for 1 Corinthians 11, it's just interesting. So a lot of people propose that what's happening here is that this first part is Paul's voice. This part, he's quoting from a letter that the Corinthians wrote to him, and then he's following it up with his own, um, his own correction to what they um, had believed. So this is the part where he says, but the, head of, but the head of Christ is God. And then this whole part about every man who prays and prophesies, maybe what's going on in the church is the men are just being, you know, like dumb. Instead of being one in Christ, the men are making women do strange things with their hair and like just using their, their power to, to make women just do stuff for them. And they have these theologies about how a woman is the glory of man. And, you know, and so Paul has to, he quotes them. And then he says, nevertheless, the point is in the Lord, women is not independent from man, nor is man independent from women. And then he says, if anyone wants to be divisive about this, we have no such custom of women wearing head coverings, not, um, nor do the, ch the churches of God. That's one way to read that, to read, to read that passage. Um, does that make sense? You tracking with me here? Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know. The, 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 the danger of having a rhetorical argument when you read Paul is it could be a very slippery slope because you could take all, a lot of the things that Paul said and be like, oh, that's not Paul's voice. He's quoting someone. You know what I mean? Take some of the things that Paul says about homosexuality. Take some of the things that Paul says about other things. And you could say, oh, he, Paul's quoting. That's not his voice. So it could be dangerous. It could be a very slippery slope. So I don't know, but it might not be wrong either. You know, just have to think about it. Uh, but 
the big 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 16 takeaway implication in my mind is this, is that wherever you land, even if you land in a place where it's like women, head coverings, yes. Where you got to land is that if men and women are appropriately submitted, if what Paul seems to be saying is that if, if you really believe that women should be wearing head coverings in order to pray and prophesy, then that means that if a woman wears a head covering, then she is allowed to pray and prophesy in the church. That's the takeaway. That make sense? So Paul seems to be saying, even if you believe that the head coverings are legit Paul and that he wants women to wear head coverings, the big takeaway is is that Paul says, if she's wearing a head covering, free to prophesy. That brings us to 1 Corinthians 14 because that little piece from 1 Corinthians 11 is really, really important because this is the passage where Paul says women cannot speak in church. So what does he mean? He just said that women could speak in church if they wore head coverings, and now he's saying that women can't speak ever. So what's going on? You know, again, it's just interpretive, interesting things. So I'll read it. So he says, what is the outcome then, brothers and sisters, when you assemble? By the way, this part, the context is he just got done talking to them about speaking in tongues because they're like, speak, everybody's, these church services would have been wild, you know, just people speaking out of turn and, you know, this guy's trying to talk over this person. And so, and so he has to come in and be like, okay, you know, like there's order here. And so out of that, here's, here's what he says. So uh, what is the outcome then, brothers and sisters? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. All things are done, are to be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it must be by two or at the most three, and each one in turn, and one is to interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he is to keep silent in church and have him speak to himself and to God. Have two or three prophets speak and have the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, then the first one is to keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God first went out? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but all things must be done properly and in an orderly way. Okay, what are we to do with this? A couple observations. Notice that he tells three groups of people to be silent in this passage. Did you notice that? It's three groups of people he tells to be silent in church. Sometimes we just read this passage and it's like, women, he's telling women to be silent. No, he tells three groups of people to be silent. He says um, in verse 28, but if there's no interpreter, he's to keep silent in church. By the way, when it says he, the he's not in the Greek, by the way. Um, the, we'll, get, we'll get to that in a second, but there's no he in there. It's just like this assumed, like, oh, okay, it's, it's, well, sorry, we'll get to that in a second. But if there's no interpreter, he is to keep silent in church. Okay, so the idea is if there's nobody, if you have a, a word in tongues and there's no interpreter, what are you supposed to do? Be silent in church. Is Paul prohibiting this person to be silent in church forever? No. Just until there's an interpreter, Right. The next person, if the revelation is made to another who is seated, then the first one is to keep silent. So if somebody else is talking and you've got something to say, what should you do? Stay silent in church. 
are you, are you is Paul saying you got to be silent forever? No, just until like there's time to talk, okay? And then he says the women are to keep silent in the churches. I think what we're supposed to, and I think what we can see from the passage is that this isn't a forever, like never speak in church, but you know, there's possibly some things going on in that Corinthian church. So some speculation. So maybe the women, you've probably heard these, these arguments before too, perhaps, but cause we don't really know what was going on in the church in Corinth. Women perhaps were speaking with each other. So maybe like Somebody's trying to speak in the front and perhaps maybe there's like these side conversations going on. And so Paul's like, hey, don't speak in church like that. Wait for after church to do that. You know, maybe it's that sort of thing. Or maybe the women are speaking to their husbands and asking questions in the middle. Because in this culture, the women weren't supposed to like the women weren't like taught Torah, you know. Um, So it's actually interesting that Paul says like, hey, um, if you if she wants to be taught, then then. you should teach her, you know? So there is like a, there's a, there's a teaching element to this, but, um, some people think that maybe they were in the middle of the, the, the assembly, they were asking their husbands questions about stuff and it was distracting. And so Paul's like, Hey, be silent, not be silent, but forever, but be silent until you are taught. Um, or maybe the women were interrupting the person speaking and asking questions. Maybe that was happening. Like, Hey, I don't like that. You know, like, I don't know, just like yelling out. We're not really sure. Um, but we kind of have to like speculate a little bit. But I think maybe one takeaway take is this. The emphasis isn't on don't speak necessarily. The emphasis is more on speak in the right context to, pro- to promote order and unity. The presumption is that after the women are taught, they're permitted to speak. Maybe women are just speaking out and they've got these questions. Paul's like, hey, just like everybody else, like, hey, th- this isn't the time for that. But there's a time later for that. And for the other people, he had to give other uh, instructions. But for the women, it was be silent until you're taught, and then you can speak. Um, that's one takeaway. Take but there is a rhetorical, rhetorical explanation to this passage. Remember, the rhetorical one is like maybe Paul's quoting. And this one actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. I'm going to read it from the Revised Standard Version. Um, it says, you know, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then right here, the argument is that he is quoting what the Corinthians were falsely doing in their church. Maybe this is exactly what they wrote to Paul about what they were doing in Corinth. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are keeping silent, blah, 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 let them ask their husbands. And then in verse 36, he says, what? Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones that's reached? Like, what the, what the heck are you guys thinking? <laughs> like, What? Are you guys the only, are you guys like coming up with scripture on your own here? You know, like it's that sort of an idea of perhaps a rhetorical argument for like what could be happening in this passage. I don't know. Another argument for maybe one of the reasons why this is confusing is were the ver- were verses 35, 34 and 35 added later. The reason why a lot of scholars maybe think this is because see these verses right here it says, you know, um, God is not a God of confusion, but peace. Sorry, it should be this whole thing because this verse wasn't, I mean, they didn't advert the verse numbers until like the 14th century or something. So um, this part right here, as in all the churches of the saints, see these verses? Those, those verses in different of some of our earliest texts that we have, these verses are in two different places. Some versions put this, these two verses after verse 33, but some of our earliest texts that we have put these verses after verse 40. They're in two different places. 
that rarely happens, but some of the, some scholars just think like, well, maybe like this was written in the margins of the text somewhere. And did Paul write it in the margins? Maybe, maybe somebody else added it to the margins afterwards. That's why they didn't really quite know where exactly to put it. Cause in some earlier te- early texts, they put it here and some, they put it somewhere else. I don't know. It's just interesting. You can do your own scholarship on that. Um, but there's some scholars that say, no, those, we think that those verses were added later because it's unclear as to where they were originally in the text. I don't know. Um, but that's 1 Corinthians 14, some interpretive options. We've got to get to 1 Timothy 2. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty, and, dis- and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but, uh, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. There's that verse. That's, that's like one of the main verses. Um, for it was Adam who was created. And then Paul takes it back to creation. What's he doing? You know, because you could say like, oh, that's, that's, you know, something that was happening in the culture. But Paul takes it to creation now. So it's like, man, what is Paul doing? So for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. But women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. Okay. What are we going to do with this one? You can easily, I have a lot of, I, I get it. You, we can read these verses and come, we come to a lot of conclusions about what Paul could be saying. And there's Christian traditions that have read these and it's like, well, it's obviously clear what Paul is saying, right? I mean, it is really clear on first reading what Paul seems to be saying. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Um, and then he brings it to like, the, the reason why is because what's assumed is that in, because in creation, the woman is not, is not fit to lead because she's, she was the one that was deceived. She's like, she's, she's we obviously weaker than the man was, man is. Um, and then there's this weird thing about, it seems like he's saying that a woman's job is to submit and to let the man lead and pump out babies. That's, and that seems like, well, Paul, this is one of those places where people are like, Paul is a misogynist. Like Paul, let's just get rid of Paul because it's like, what is he saying? And I get it because they're, they're, they're so hard, but, um, Let's look at some context, because I think there's some good answers to what Paul could be saying, okay? First, context. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor in Ephesus. And Paul's foremost advice for Timothy, all through the book of 1 Timothy, is, is guarding the church from unhealthy leadership and promoting healthy leadership in the church. He, all, all through the letter, we're not going to go through all this, but like Paul's warning him about all sorts of different kinds of unhealthy leadership that's working its way into the church. There's mystics with like, ooh, I've got the answer. And there's legalists who are trying to take away their freedom in Christ. And there's former leaders who have fallen away. There's flashy leaders. There's like good looking leaders there's authority grabbing leaders, there's inexperienced leaders, there's inconsistent leaders. And Paul's just trying to like, Hey, Timothy, the way that this is going to work is like, we need a good leadership. Um, and so that's going on. But also here's what we know is we know that in Ephesus, there was the temple of Artemis. Um, 
The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was gigantic. It's not there anymore. It was destroyed and rebuilt several times. Um, if you go to the book of Acts, you know what happens when Paul went to, went to Ephesus and he causes a ruckus because people are coming to Jesus and throwing their scrolls uh, of, to, to the god Artemis. And like the whole city is in an uproar because they're like, Paul's trying to, Paul's like, you know, undermining our, our Artemis worship. And, you know, it was like a whole big deal. So we know that the temple of Artemis was central in the city of Ephesus. We also know a lot about Artemis. We know that Artemis was a was a female goddess who was who was linked to for, to virginity and kind of like independence. We know that the the followers of the Temple of Artemis that there were um, I should probably just read what I wrote because um, I'll get ahead of myself. Uh, the women dedicated themselves to Artemis and imitated her in dress and hairstyles, elaborate hairstyles. Uh, we we I I should have put up some pictures because we have like some. Uh, we a bunch of statues of the of the goddess Artemis from in that day and like big hairdo styles like dress. Um, it'll make us blush because there's like lots of female breasts that the that the goddess Artemis had um, that they worship. The Temple of Artemis had an alternative. This is what we know. They had, they had an alternative creation story where women were created first and were created to be dominant over men. So the idea is that, you know, like, like uh, women are dominant over men. She was the goddess. Uh, she was a goddess thought to be in control of the life or death of a woman in labor. Oh, interesting. Um, here's, uh, here's uh, I'll, I'll read it again and we'll get back to that. Um, Therefore, I want men to, in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. First of all, he has, he's addressing the men because apparently there's some brawling happening. They're fighting with each other. And so he's like, quit that, quit that. And then he says, a woman must quietly, I don't know how to say that word. I practiced it earlier and now I can't remember. So um, <laughs> there is that Greek word. But it's interesting because that, that word quietly in other places is translated as, is translated as silent. Um, but the word that word in multiple places in the New Testament is like, it's not silence. It's like peaceable. It's like with a learning attitude. You know, it's like this humble sort of an idea of like what quiet means. A woman should quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow women to teach or to exercise authority. Now that word, authentine, I think that's maybe how you say it. This is again, one of those words that's not used anywhere else in the Bible. This is the one place. So there's plenty of words that Paul has used in other places for authority, and he doesn't use it. He uses this one. So what does this word mean? And nobody really quite knows. But, you know, when you, when you try to figure out where the roots of it are, it's, it, it, apparently it means like it's, it's, it's a self-grabbed authority. Like it's not authority that somebody gives you or that you earn. It's like you, you like take it for yourself um, over a man, but to remain quiet. There's that word again. Um, sorry, I'm not following my notes and now I don't know why I put this next one in there. Um, oh yeah. Okay. So what does he mean when he brings it to creation? For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. So here's possibly what was happening in Ephesus is there are these there's the the temple of Artemis is right in the is in the center of everything there's all sorts of cultic practices and like different creation stories 
and the woman who dedicated their lives to to um, to Artemis were perhaps these like dominant. I'm in charge. Like, who cares what you say? Like, we're in charge. Maybe maybe this is what's happening in this church. Um, and so maybe what Paul's doing when he talks about Adam was created first and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. Um, I, I found a quote from a commentator that I'm going to read because I, I just, I like how it's described here. Um, it was not Adam that was deceived, but Eve isn't to say that women are more susceptible to deception than men. Therefore, they shouldn't be leaders. Rather, Paul's point is that Adam received the instruction from God about the tree and he relayed that to Eve. And so Eve, because remember, Adam was created first, and God gave the, the instructions to not eat from the tree to Adam. And then Eve came later, so that instruction had to get translated to Eve, okay? So the idea is Eve was in a position where she had to not only trust God, but trust Adam that he had relayed the information faithfully. Paul's point is that instead of these Corinthian women teaching whatever they wanted, they had to trust that the gospel that Paul received from Jesus was accurate and true, and that Paul was faithfully translating that to the churches. If they decided that they didn't want to listen to Paul, then they would be making the same mistake that Eve made. Does that make sense? So instead of, instead of Paul bringing it to creation to try to say something about, hey, a woman got deceived, therefore like she's not fit to lead. Maybe his point is that she had to receive that information from the tree secondhand, but she had to trust that what Adam had said was what God had said. In the same way, these women who are women who perhaps are like taking control and they just want to teach and they don't want to listen to what Paul has to say about the gospel because maybe they got their own creation story, maybe you know whatever that Paul's saying. Hey, don't make the same mistake that Eve made. Eve had to tr- Eve had to trust that Adam received that information from God. You've got to trust that I'm bringing you accurate information about the nature of the gospel and the nature of creation. See what I mean? It's an interesting uh, take. But then we get to this part. It says, but women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. What does that mean? It seems to be saying that if a woman wants to get in good graces with God, if a woman wants to be saved, she's got she's to have some babies. Okay, Is that what Paul's saying? Um, here's uh, one commentator says this about Artemis. I think it's so helpful because I think it might be right. The Ephesian Artemis was believed to have the power to bring new life into. This isn't like from a Christian, by the way. This is just from like ancient like his, historian. Their look into Artemis and who she was. The the Ephesian Artemis was believed to have the power to bring new life into the world and to take life away. Several ancient documents reveal she was regarded as a midwife. It was thought. She helped women and animals in labor. Ephesian women would call on Artemis during childbirth to speed up the labor and ease the pain, or in dire circumstances, they would call on her to bring about a quick death to end their suffering. Many women died in childbirth during this time in history. Many, many, many. Many children died and many women died. And so you imagine if you've got the temple Artemis in the middle of your city and like she promises that she's going to get you through it, she's going to save you through it, um, or if the promise is that if it's just going to like be endless and laborious and it, like, and it's just going to die in death anyways, then she's going to dispatch you more quickly, um, to have like mercy on you in a way. Like if that was the story, then like, there's going to be a lot of women who are approaching every childbirth with trepidation. <laughs> it's scary. I mean, it's scary now with like 
hospital staff and you know it's I mean it's but like in that day it must have been um, so scary and so calling on the name of Artemis to to save you through the childbirth um, Lucy Pepiat says this and I love it she says to come out of a cult where it was presumed that women were protected by the goddess of childbearing would put them in fear either of becoming exposed to danger or possibly to be victims of vengeance on the part of the goddess. So you've got these people coming out of the temple of Artemis, these, these ladies and men, husbands, you know, like, and, um, and the, there's a fear there. Like if I leave Artemis, is she going to kill me the next time I have a child? So there's a lot of fear there. 1 Timothy 2.15 offers hope instead of fear for women in this context. In addition to being assured that they would be saved or protected through the process of childbirth, they, would, they could exhibit this trust in God by preserving in faith, love, holiness, with modesty, rather than returning to their old ways, which would indicate that they were still worshiping Artemis and living in fear of her. Her watchful eye over women in labor was a powerful, volatile sovereign who determined who would live or die. Artemis was believed either to be able to deliver a mother and child safely through childbirth or alternatively to dispatch the mother in labor. Thus, the name of Artemis was associated with one who had the power to deliver and crucially became associated with the term savior. Paul is saying that being saved through childbearing is not within Artemis's power to grant as they had been taught, but God's. Helpful. Um, Interesting perspective on that verse. Okay, I have a few more minutes, and I got to get to First Corinth—or sorry, First Timothy three, because it's the very next part after this, and this is the part about elders. This is so fascinating. Let me read it. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, skillful in teaching, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not gent- or, oh sorry, not but gentle, not contentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must, not, or, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Okay. Um, on first reading, what is it really like? On, on first reading, who gets to be an elder in Paul's mind? Like a man, for sure, for sure, right. Um, but it's interesting, you said married man, because like, yeah, because it's like, a, you know, the husband of one wife, which is just interesting, because it's like, I mean, does that mean in Paul's mind that, and, and he mentions kids in here too, so it's like, you have to be married and with kids. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's highly contested on whether Paul was married. Most scholars say that he wasn't married, that he was a single man himself. So it's like Paul is dismissing himself from being an elder, just by decide, but just by listing the qualifications of an elder. We know that Jesus was single, and so Jesus can't be an elder either in the church. You know what I mean? So it's like, okay, like what's going on here? It's confusing. What I did here is I, as I highlighted in yellow all the different male pronouns that are in this, in this text, okay? And I'm using the New American Standard uh, Bible just, just for the sake of proving, making my point here. So you see a lot of... A lot of man in here, right? He, he, he. Um, 
Did I um I, I didn't I didn't I didn't highlight this one because I'll get to that in a second. But you see all these man in here? I, I highlighted them all. Okay, here's just what's interesting. None of those male pronouns are in the original Greek. None. It's not in there. I'll prove it to you. Um, this is the Greek in here. Trustworthy, the saying, if anyone over... Oh, by the way, a lot of translations would say, if a man desires to lead, that word, that word uh, tis right there, that word is used everywhere else in the, in the New Testament as like a general word for like anyone. Brothers and sisters, it's not just a man. It's one of those guys word, you know, like, hey, if any guys want to, it's like, that means male and female, okay? So if anyone... This is kind of like, if you were to just word for, see, this is why Bible translation is tricky, because like if they just translated as best as we can English words for Greek words, then it wouldn't be readable. You know what I mean? We would just be, it would just jump all over the place. So you have to try to organize it in a way where there's, there's like some flow and some thoughts, because Paul had a flow and a thought, and in their minds, like it flowed, but for us, it's just different. So trustworthy, the saying, if anyone overseership aspires to of a of good a work is desirous it behooves therefore the overseer above reproach to be of one wife the husband that one is in there the husband um, sober self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not given to wine not a striker but gentle peaceable not loving money the own house well managing children having in submission with all dignity if but one the own husband to man, or sorry, household to manage, not knows how the church of God. How will care for not a novice that not having been puffed up into judgment might fall of the devil? It behooves now also a testimony good to have from those outside, so that not into reproach might fall in the snare of the devil. No, he's in there. It's interesting. Why do he's get put in there? Because you know, translators, they read that and it's like, well, Paul must be, I mean, on one hand, you could have somebody that say, well, Paul's talking about elders. Women aren't allowed to be elders. So let's, so it's got to be he. So we'll just put in he's. But probably the reason why he is put in there is because of that husband of one wife part, right? Because it says you must be a husband of one wife. So why does, I mean, Paul has to put that, but think about it. Like in that culture, polygamy was a thing, right? And it was probably widespread around the culture. So Paul has to say, husbands, you, I want you to be a one-woman man. But why does Paul not have to say, and women, if he is talking to women, why doesn't Paul say, and women, I want you to be a one-husband-wife? Why does Paul not put that in there? Because it probably wasn't a problem at all. Because in that culture, there probably weren't, that wasn't a thing. You know, there wasn't an issue. Paul's is just addressing things that were happening um, in, you know, in this time. So because it has the husband of one wife, I think, you know, translators assume, well, then obviously this whole section is talking about a he. But I just, that's just, I'm just, all I'm saying is that's just an assumption that you are making when you're coming to the text where there's no <coughs> male pronouns in it at all. That's interesting, isn't it? I find it interesting. Um, guys, I'm at the end this is my last slide. Um, quote from Jeffrey Miller. He says, forms of, I don't know how to say that, but it's, that, it's a, the word that's translated woman, wife, in a lot of places in the New Testament. Forms of that word for woman and wife occur 215 times in the Greek New Testament. And forms of the English words for woman and wife occur 
251 times in the New King James of the New Testament. So what that means is in the Greek, there's 215 times woman or wife are mentioned. But because you have to fill in the blanks, because there's like some parts where it's like, okay, is this, you know, so the, new, so the King James Version has woman and wife 251 times. Because, you know, if it's like, if we're talking about a woman here, but you need like a gender pronoun, like in the very next sentence, add it. You know what I mean? Just like put it in there because it's connected. It makes sense. So um, that's an increase of 36 times. But forms of, did you, you probably read ahead already. This is fascinating. But forms of uh, aner, I don't know how you say it, uh, which is the word for man, husband, occur 216 times in the New Testament. In contrast, forms of man and husband occur 1,343 times in the King James Version, an addition of 1,127. Oh, whoa. Like, that is interesting. The point is, is we can make a lot of assumptions of what the text is saying, and I, I think sometimes there's a lot of assumptions about who this scripture is speaking to, and at least in the King James Version, it just becomes this he, he, him, 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 man, 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 when those words aren't even in the original language. That's worth considering. That's worth doing more study on. That's doing more research on. Um, to conclude, again, back to, like my, back to my, my hope. My hope is that I don't really even care if I've got, I don't, want really, I don't even care if I want to convince anyone of like what I think maybe the scripture is saying. I think like the biggest win for me is that we walk away from this saying, okay, it's, it's deep, it's, it's wide, it's, it's, it's more complicated than maybe I imagined. And so therefore, I wanna be a, I wanna be a deeper student, I wanna be a, a deeper learner, uh, I, wanna, I wanna not bring my assumptions to the text, but I wanna, I wanna you know, I wanna, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's what I just hope that we can take away from this because um, just through my journey of just reading, I, I really feel like, Based on where, what I see happening in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Genesis 3, and then where the new creation is heading, and then when you read some possible interpretations for some of these really difficult passages in the New Testament, I feel like I'm reading my Bible in a way that's making me feel like, man, I feel... Uh, so I started this class last week by saying, if you would have asked me two years ago, like, do I believe in women in ministry? I would have said, heck yeah. I mean, I'm foursquare, so Yes. But if you'd asked me, like, hey, would you feel comfortable being at a, like, at a church where a woman is the senior pastor? I would have been, like, I'm not sure. Because just, it's like, man, there's, uh, i got some uncertainties. I, I feel like now, I, I feel like I would robustly say, yeah. I would feel, I think that the scripture it releases women to lead in church context and be in authority over man. I just think there's enough uh, clues in the text and to where the new creation is heading that that's, that's what I think.